Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program is pre-recorded. This is Women to Watch. To rise above all of the noise and fulfill every last one of your dreams. Women to Watch, sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world. It is for those frightened children who want peace. It is for those voiceless children who want change. Be inspired by women from across the globe who are encouraging more women to pursue their dreams. True philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given. Now, Women to Watch. Here's your host, Sue Rocco. Good evening, everyone, and thank you so much for being with me for another week of Women to Watch. It's always great to be back with all of you, and as we're on air this evening, I hope you continue to be safe and well. I think it's uh, very fitting that my guest this evening is a woman whose career has been in journalism and who is now the leader of a publication that covers events from around the world. Her name is Susan Goldberg, and Susan is the editor-in-chief of National Geographic, and she'll be with me in just a moment. Stay with us as we go into our breaks to hear from our watch team of on-air contributors, bringing you information in health, law, finance, military affairs, technology, and marketing. And as always, to see who's coming up on the show next, feel free to visit our website at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. And be sure to sign up for our podcast there as well so you never miss a show. And now I'm very thrilled and honored to welcome again to the show Susan Goldberg. Susan, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Well, thank you, Susan. I'm delighted to be here. Um, You know, typically I would be starting uh, right with your upbringing and your background, but in light of um, everything that's been going on this week, I I wanted to ask two questions at the top of the show um, that I think are relevant. 
And the first one is from all of your years um, in journalism, I wondered if you could describe a difference between um, what we are seeing this week around the protests versus perhaps what you've witnessed and, and stories you've covered in years previously. Um, well, thank you uh, for that. You know, I'm 60 years old. I've uh, been a full-time journalist for 40 years. I got to start very young when I was about 20 years old, and we can talk more about that. So I've covered, you know, lots of events and been involved in, you know, shaping how the organizations I've worked for have covered events. But I must say the, um, you know, the dual pandemics that we really have, COVID and then now the unrest uh, that has come about because of the killing of Mr. Floyd, uh, I really can't remember anything that has seemed quite as um, uh, monumental, I guess I would say, as, as these two events kind of coming right on top of each other and one, you know, each one making the other, other even more fraught. Um, you know what? My hope would be, of course, is that finally we have some kind of a reckoning um, about racial justice. And I would just say as a journalist uh, at National Geographic, you know, these are topics that we cover. We're covering this now in real time across uh, all of our digital platforms. And, you know, covering the subject of race is, is very important for National Geographic because we've covered the story of the human journey for 132 years. And obviously, race is a big part of that journey. Susan, can you share um, just a little bit about how the, the pandemic itself has affected you and your team um, and the magazine as far as the logistics of day to day? Well, sure. Like everybody else, um, you know, we are lucky enough to be able to work from home and we have been working from home. Our meetings are conducted either by telephone or Zoom or Slack or email. Uh, so, you know, we and everybody else are dealing with that, with the inefficiency of, of that process. Um, but, you know, I, I would say that uh, we've done really pretty well with it um, and better, much better, in fact, than I would have thought. I really, of course, terribly miss the interaction with smart and creative colleagues. I miss the, you know, the spontaneous idea generation. I miss the um, inability to very quickly solve problems by a three-second hallway conversation. Um, so right. I, do, I yes. do really miss all of those things a lot. But we're doing well. What, what is going to be challenging, though, is travel restrictions are not lifted soon, is we'll have to figure out a different way to cover stories globally. What we usually do is send a photographer and a reporter, um, you know, out around the world to pay maybe numerous places to cover a big issue, say, around climate change. What we'll have to do if these travel restrictions don't get um, lifted is use photographers and reporters already in different places around the world to, you know, um, talk to people to write about situations and scenes to gather colors to get those pictures, and then we would assemble the story centrally here in Washington. That's a that's a very different way for us to do business. It's much more like the news weekly magazines and how they tend to cover stories. But you know we can make that adjustment if we have to because we are lucky enough to have a deep bench pretty much everywhere you go. 
Right. And, you know, we'll talk a little bit more later in the show about really what what your priorities have been um, with the magazine and, and taking it more to digital and, and other platforms. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your upbringing in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And um, I wonder if you can just describe for me what that was like and then perhaps share. I read a, a, a really wonderful story about uh, you're coming to your parents to tell them you were going to drop out of college um, to, to take a job in journalism. And I love that your father said, good for you, kid. Go for it. Well, he did. I was I was very lucky. Um, you know, I guess as kids, you don't always really appreciate what you have when you're when you're growing up. Uh, I grew up, as you said, in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, my parents were both with the University of Michigan. My dad was a professor there and my mom was a librarian. And, uh, you know, I grew up speaking of protest at the time of the Vietnam War, and Ann Arbor was a hotbed of student protest um, with SDS uh, having a big, the Students for a Democratic Society, a protest group having a real big presence on campus. And so, you know, we, we would talk about the Vietnam War all the time because it was just so much a part of what I saw every day. I happened to go to school uh, real near the University of Michigan campus. And, mm. you know, I think it really um, made me want to be a journalist because, you know, you could see watching the television news every single night, which we watched together as a family, that the light that the uh, reporters were shining on the truth of what was happening on the ground in Vietnam was very different from the lies being told by the administration. And so it made me realize quite early that, you know, journalists could make a difference and that that, that their reporting could change events and, and, you know, shine those light in those dark corners and illuminate them so people could take action. And it really stuck with me. Um, ever since. Wow. Listen, we are going to go into our first break. Stay with us. I'm speaking to Susan Goldberg, editor-in-chief of National Geographic. Stay with us for our Legal Watch with Nicole Hittner. We'll be right back. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. Watch. Legal Watch. Legal Watch. This is Nicole Hittner from Ballard's Bar Law Firm for Legal Watch. Here in Minneapolis and around the country, this past week has been filled with protests and rioting in the wake of the George Floyd murder. It seems everyone wants to know where we go from here. In response, Ballard is launching a racial justice and equality initiative, partnering with public interest organizations to provide pro bono legal assistance to those who need help. This program, spearheaded by Philadelphia attorney Khalil Williams, is not a cure for the systematic problems of injustice and inequality, but it is definitely a step in the right direction. Ballard is actively making decisions about partnering with companies that care about these issues. There is corporate responsibility to address necessary change, and I hope that it matters to you who your legal partner is and what that partner stands for. 
Ballard is committed to being part of the solution. We're leading with hope and solidarity. For more information on how you can join forces with us, reach out to Khalil or me at ballardspar.com. This is Nicole Hitner for your Legal Watch. This is Women to Watch with Sue Rocco. Talk Radio 1210 WPHD. Welcome back. I'm speaking with Susan Goldberg this evening, Editor-in-Chief of National Geographic and Editorial Director of National Geographic Partners. Um, Susan, it's very well known that you got your journalism bug in the eighth grade. Um, you did a paper on opportunities in journalism. And I think I read that you actually spelled <laughs> the word opportunities wrong um, in that paper, which I love that you share that. Oh, I, it's, I, to- I, it's totally uh, true. And, you know, um, it was the beginning of a long career of misspellings on my part. <laughs> um, I love that you're a journalist and you're willing to share that. I, I actually have a question for you from not only a listener, but she happens to be my daughter, who is a photographer. And she wanted to know, did you grow up knowing that you wanted to work for National Geographic one day? You know, we got National Geographic when I was a kid, and like so many people, it was one of the ways that I started to understand that the world was a lot bigger than the then small town I grew up in. I mean, Ann Arbor was a pretty small place back then. Um, so, you know, between between the pages of National Geographic and the trips that my family was lucky enough to take around the world um, with sabbaticals that my father would go on, um, I got to understand that the world was uh, a pretty big place. But, uh, you know, I never really had thought about National Geographic as a place to work. What I wanted to do was work for a newspaper, and that's what I did. I started out in newspapers. My career began um, as the as a summer intern at the Seattle Post-Intelligencer, uh, which later turned into a full-time job, uh, which was when I had to tell my dad that I was quitting college, um, you know, to take this to take this full-time job in Seattle. And, you know, he said, good for you, Susan, we're very proud of you, which was not the answer I thought he would give me. Um, (laughs) That's a good dad. Yeah, that was, that was, it was really an amazing moment. And the older I get, um, the more I realize how hard it must have been for him to have said that to me. Uh, It Mm. would be hard for, you know, me to say that. You know, to to my son, had my son said, "And I'm quitting college and taking this job," I would be like, "What are you talking about?" But, right. You know, yes. My dad, right. My dad, though, had the wisdom to, I think, hear the passion in my voice and to know that I had found my calling. And he just said, "Good for you. You go for it." Um, I always do hasten to add, I finally did finish college. I finished up at night. Um, but, Good. Uh, yes. Yeah. You know, just because I was always nervous that one day if I didn't finish, it would come back to haunt me, um, mm. you know, that I might be denied an opportunity. Uh, but, you know, my career really began then as that summer intern when I was 20 years old. And of course, I've just been working ever since. Um, but right. I always worked in newspapers or I, or in the in, you know, doing news. Um, mm-hmm. And so one day National Geographic called out of the blue, and I thought, wow, this could be amazing. Yes. So that in, in 2014, I guess you became uh, the 10th and first female editor-in-chief of National Geographic. And I wanted to share a quote, something you said. Um, you said, I think the world will be a better place when there are no longer stories of women being the first. And I think it's going to happen 
with this next generation. Um, I have to tell you, I was so thrilled to, to read that, and I agree with you. And I wondered what you say to the, the naysayers who don't see it coming along quite that soon. Well, um, look, I really do believe that, you know, once there doesn't have to be a national news story written about some woman to be the first something, we will be in a much better place because it will show that we're finally, you know, just appointing the best people for the job. Um, but, you know, it's it's taking a really long time. I, I must say uh, there is undeniable progress, and I, I guess the path of progress is made up of, you know, moments of major advancement and then maybe some plateaus and then more advancement and then some plateaus. It has felt a little bit in the last few years like there has been a bit of a plateau, uh, particularly in the media industry, which has, you know, undergoing an economic sea change and a technological sea change. And, you know, the way our audiences want and expect news and information is changing. There's been so much chaos in the industry that I think it's made it um, more difficult, I think, to see that very quick advancement that we saw for women leaders, especially in journalism in the 1990s and the earlier 2000s. When National Geographic came calling in, in um, 2013, I'll say, um, at that time, you said I could help them or you hope to help them become newsier and more timely um, with its digital expansion. And I wondered what was your first uh, priority or at the top of your list in helping the publication do just that? Well, um, and that's absolutely true because, of course, I had come out of a daily news business. Now, of course, National Geographic has an ability to do news quickly and in real time, like we're seeing with COVID-19 or like we're seeing, you know, with the unrest going on um, around the around the country. So of course, we have those abilities on our digital platforms, but I don't think that the people at NetGeo had thought as much about being timely in print. We certainly do have that ability as well. And I think what you've got to do is to just look ahead at what's going on and, and, and just figure out what are the things that people want to talk about? What are the stories that are, you know, timeless but that we can make them timely right now, like stories about race or stories about gender, um, stories about climate change. All of those stories fit really well under the National Geographic umbrella of the kinds of things that we've been covering for, you know, since 1888, uh, you know, the human journey or, the, you know, the health of the planet. We cover scientific innovation. We cover natural history. Uh, you know, these are the things that we've always covered. But there's ways to do those stories um, in, uh, that, so that people want to talk about them. Because I think if people don't want to talk about and engage with your content, then why would they want to reach you? I mean, why, why, will, why will people open up National Geographic unless there's a reason to do so? And when I say open up National Geographic, I don't really care whether people do it in print or through a digital subscription. We should, you know, people have the freedom to read us however they want. We need to, we just need to be um, capable to give people the information they want on the platforms they want and when they want it. Exactly. Uh, we're going to go into our next break. Stay with us for our Tech Watch with Mary Manzo and our Health Watch with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. I'll be right back with Susan Goldberg. Now, the women to watch. 
Watch. Tech Watch. Hi, I'm Mary Manso from Pathways Consulting Group. Early in my career in the 90s, I was introduced to my first role in a New Jersey-based technology company. I was brought in as the manager of all things operational as employee number six. I was one of two women in the office when I started, and as the company grew, I became very aware of how few women I encountered in the tech industry, both in the company and our customers. After 10 years, we reached our goal of $100 million in annual revenue. I had a seat on the leadership team and felt good about my contributions and thought it was time to discuss career path with my boss. His response was that unless I wanted his job, there was none. This response made me so angry, and I quickly opened my eyes. He didn't care what I wanted to do or what my goals and aspirations were, and I realized that if I wanted to advance and take my talents to the next level, I'd have to get out of my own way and reach the level of confidence needed to achieve what I wanted in a male-dominated industry. What I discovered was that all those years, I subconsciously allowed myself to be intimidated by the men around me, and if I wanted to be successful, I had to stop looking at men as men and women as women and focus more on carrying myself with the level of confidence needed to be a leader and to adjust the way I would deliver my message regardless of the audience. I realized that I needed to focus on my role and not the gender in the room. The good news is that the gender gap is closing in the tech industry because of the stories of the past and the lessons that have been learned. I think it's important to share our experiences to help young girls shape their dreams and future, whether it's in the tech industry or something else. What's your story? Email me at mary at pathwayscg.com. Introducing Pathways Consulting Group, a company that will align your IT needs with your business goals. Pathways is a full-service ServiceNow partner. What does that mean? It's simple. Pathways will collaborate and design, develop, and deploy solutions for your company today that will define tomorrow. Pathways will provide world-class enterprise service management solutions. Pathways Consulting Group. They listen. They care. They execute. Go to PathwaysCG.com. That's PathwaysCG.com. Now, the women to watch. Health Watch. For HealthWatch, I'm Dr. Marianne Ritchie. One of the many notable impacts of the COVID pandemic has been a big decline in the number of patients presenting to our nation's emergency departments. The CDC gives a weekly report on morbidity and mortality called MMWR. During April of this year, the country's emergency visits dropped by 42% from the same time last year. In April 2019, just over 2 million visits, and this year, down to just over 1 million visits. With stay-at-home orders, school sports were canceled, so fewer injuries in younger patients, and fewer cars on the road, so decrease in trauma cases. Plus, more patients are being seen in urgent care facilities or using telehealth. But included in the decline is a serious drop in the number of patients with possible heart attack or stroke. Actually, in this time of stress, we might expect to see more cases. Many patients fear exposure to COVID-19 in the emergency department, while others may think the hospitals are so busy treating COVID, their own mild symptoms don't really need attention. The result? Patients delay their trip to the hospital or don't seek attention at all, which is causing a new public health crisis. 
On April 22, the American Heart Association and seven other societies issued a statement stressing the importance of seeking immediate attention when signs of stroke or heart attack appear, urging patients call 911 and get to the hospital. The American College of Cardiology states hospitals are taking precautions to ensure novel coronavirus won't spread. The faster a patient is treated, the better chance for survival with fewer serious complications. Waiting to treat heart attack can lead to dangerous heart rhythms, permanent heart damage, or death. Delay in stroke treatment can lead to more severe brain damage. Divas, if you have chest pain, shortness of breath, dizziness, blurry vision, slurred speech, it's not your job to decide whether you need help. It's mine. Call 911-STAT. I'm speaking with Susan Goldberg this evening. So thrilled to have her as a guest. Um, Susan is the editor-in-chief of National Geographic. And, you know, Susan, one of the things I have always loved about National Geographic is the visual and and the photography. And I am truly a, a, a visual learner. And National Geographic reveals, you know, the best and the worst of humanity. And I wondered if you believe that having this kind of visual content or knowledge, I'll say, gives people a more truthful perspective of the world and, and what's happening. You know, I, I think it's extremely important that we show people that we don't just tell them about what is going on. And, you know, you mentioned you're a visual learner. Some, you know, people go into, um, you know, news stories or um doesn't have to be news, go into any kind of story through different ways. You know, a lot of people will look at a picture first, then the eye goes to a headline, then the, then the eye might go to the caption. There's a lot of studies about this. And then finally, the last place people go is to the smaller text. Um, and people do learn in different ways. Some people um, really love graphics and will immediately gravitate to looking at those first. So I think we re- need to be really cognizant of it. But look, at a time when, um, you know, so much of news wrongly is being questioned for whether it's real or not, you know, uh, where legitimate um, news sources are being undermined, um, by this drumbeat that somehow what they're doing is fake. I think the fact that you can show people pictures uh, is very important and can really help people have confidence in the authority and credibility, uh, say, that we can bring to any kind of topic all over the world. You know, that that was actually my next question. I was, I was going to ask you about that. You know, people are very skeptical today. And, you know, you've said... Your publication is always on the side of science, facts, and the planet. And, and are there any tips for readers to kind of recognize the difference in journalism uh, between truth and, and fact? Or, I'm well, sorry, false. You know, yeah, false claims. Absolutely. And I, I think it's very important. We're even publishing a children's book. Um, I think it's coming out this fall about, you know, how kids can evaluate the veracity of news sources. Um, you know, it's one thing if you pick up National Geographic or pick up the New York Times, you know, you know, these are credible news sources, which is not to say that we don't make mistakes. We do and we correct them. But these are credible sources of news and information. I think what 
the problem is, is, you know, digitally particularly, you know, with stuff just flying around the Internet, and you're not even sure where it really started. And, you know, it's very important to look for quotes that are attributed, to look for, to see if the facts are attached to a named organization, to, mm. you know, really question, to be, try to be a skeptical reader um, the way journalists try to be skeptical. You know, in our business, there's a phrase, it's, if your mother says she loves you, check it out. And, <laughs> I, it is said, <laughs> you know, it is, it is said kind of as a joke, but I think it's, it's important to really look skeptically at information um, as it's coming to you. Look where it's coming from. Are the people named? Does it just seem ridiculous? Because often yes. things that seem ridiculous are ridiculous. But people do need to be wise consumers of information. Right. And, you know, I do I do believe that we become wiser as we get older um, in, in our questioning of things. Young people tend to... Um, you know, believe. Uh, One of my very favorite images from the 2019 women's issue um, was that of Corporal Green carrying a a male soldier on her back. I, that photo to me, I I wish I could just share it every day. Um, I think it says so much. And I'm sure you've been asked what your favorite image was from that book. Um, You know, feel free to share that or just your takeaway from doing that issue. Well, we were so delighted in uh, November of 2019 to do a special issue of National Geographic. We did a book also that looked at the National Geographic archives, um, you know, since 1888 and looked at how women have been depicted. And then we did the special issue of the magazine with all female contributors. But, you know, it's funny, uh, Susan, my favorite image was of Corporal uh, Marine Corporal Gabrielle Green as well. And oh, uh, I love that image so much. I actually yeah. had it blown up, and it is on the wall in my office. I find it inspirational because she is getting, she's training for deployment. This was an image taken by Lindsay Adario, a female photographer, one of our, one of the best war or conflict photographers in the world. And so Gabrielle Green has got this 200-pound man over her shoulder, and she is marching up a steep ramp. And right. you, just, you look at that image, and she is so determined, and she is so strong, and you know she's not going to drop this guy, and she's going to get to the top of that ramp. I just find it an incredibly inspirational image, and that's why I put it in my office. Oh, my gosh. I, I do, too. And maybe I'll do that. <laughs> I have the book. Maybe I will do that. Um, I wanted to talk about um, a, a mentor and someone you've worked with in your life that you've spoken about, Terry Egger. Um, I, I was curious what it is about him that made him one of the, the best leaders you've ever worked for. Yeah. I'm and by the way, I here. think he I'm sorry. I think he just retired from the Philadelphia Inquirer. He did. He was the publisher of the Inquirer. But when I worked with Terry, he was the publisher of the Plain Dealer in Cleveland. And he hired me to be the editor of of the Plain Dealer. And, you know, one of the reasons I left, um, I was at the San Jose Mercury News and went to Cleveland, was uh, to work with Terry. I just found him such a positive, can-do leader who always, you know, took a deep breath before he spoke, um, you know, really thought through uh, what he was, what he was about to say. 
And whenever I would uh, encounter a really thorny problem, I would always try to stop myself and take that moment and say, okay, what would Carrie do or how would he evaluate this situation? I just so admired his um, unflappability, his optimism, and, you know, his candor about, you know, the things that we needed to accomplish, where we were coming up short, but also the things that we were doing really well. And uh, those are things that, you know, when I talk to our staff, I try to remember to keep all those things in balance. You know, don't get overwhelmed by just the problems to always remember all the things that are going right and all the amazing work that people are, are still doing. Yeah, that's great advice. Uh, We're going to go into our last break. Stay with us for our financial watch with Terry and Maggie. The Women to Watch Finance Watch. Hi, this is Terry, and I'm from Fortis Wealth. Many financial advisors are talking about Roth IRA conversions more than usual lately. You may be wondering how they work. With a traditional IRA and most other retirement plans, you contribute pre-tax dollars. You get a tax deduction now, but pay income taxes on your account withdrawals when you're retired. For Roth contributions, you use post-tax money. You don't get a tax deduction now, but all your withdrawals, both principal and growth, are tax-free if the account is held for at least five years. A conversion involves transferring all or part of the traditional IRA or retirement plan to a Roth IRA. Unlike Roth IRA contributions, there are no income limits on conversions. So a Roth conversion makes sense if the IRA owner expects to be in the same or a higher tax bracket in retirement, if the money is intended for heirs whose tax bracket is likely to be at least as high as the account owners, or if you like the idea of having tax treatment diversification and flexibility in retirement. An ideal time for a Roth conversion may be when the value of your IRA is lower and or in any tax year when your income is lower than normal. Whether your income dips or not, conversion can be spread over several years to better manage the tax bill. So what's the catch? Conversions usually trigger the the income tax bill on the amount of transfer, and the taxes must be paid with funds outside of the IRA. However, once the money's inside the Roth, future withdrawals are tax-free if the rules are followed. In addition, there are no required minimum distributions that force owners to take money out at a certain age. Given the current deficit and the recent stimulus packages, it isn't a huge leap to think tax rates will go up in the future. If you make a Roth IRA conversion now and income tax rates do increase, you'll have made a conversion at bargain rates. If you think tax rates are headed up over the long run, Roth IRA conversions could be a good strategy for you. Each situation is different and there are guidelines that must be followed for the conversion to be effective. Be sure to consult with your financial advisor before moving forward. This is Terry. Peace out. If you believe that family, charity, or money is deeply important for the greater good, Fortis Wealth invites you to a highly personalized financial discovery process to help you visualize your financial legacy. It's not for everyone, but if you're willing to invest the time and thought, they can offer advice and strategies to help you accomplish your dreams. Fortis Advisors is a wholly owned subsidiary of Fortis Wealth, an investment advisor registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Visit Fortis-Wealth.com today because tomorrow is waiting. I'm joined by Susan Goldberg this evening, Editor-in-Chief of National Geographic. Um, Susan, something I read um, about was in 1999, your husband passed away. And there were people around you, you were kind of at a crossroads, and, and people said to you, you know, never make 
a big decision um, at, at a time of crisis. And I love that you ignored that and you actually shared that that decision saved your life. And I wanted to know in what way. You know, I think back on that a lot. And I think that um, deciding um, to move across the country uh, and to really leave a, a job at USA Today then at the time that I loved and to go to the San Jose Mercury News as the first you know, female managing editor and later the first female editor of that newspaper, I think it saved my life because you know, it forced me to get back into the world. I mean, that was a big leap for me, becoming the you know, going from an assistant managing editor at USA Today to become the managing editor of the San Jose Mercury News. You know, this was at the, you know, the, in the middle of the tech boom. It was a new experience. I There were about 400 journalists at that time in, in San Jose. It was just a huge job and a very steep learning curve for me. And so, you know, at this moment of of grief, really, doing something that just forced me to focus on the task at hand and what I needed to do. And I just threw myself into that job. I just worked all the time. And, you know, I know that people talk about work-life balance and and things like that. This was at a time, though, when I just needed to work. And it really Mm -hmm. gave me something to focus on and a way to achieve. And it gave me renewed confidence in myself because that was obviously at a terrible low point in my life. Right. Um, you've, you've mentioned that some of the papers that you've worked for and, and, and you worked in Cleveland and San Jose and Detroit. And what when you're thinking about moving from one paper to another, what is it that really prompts you or motivates you to do that? Um, usually, I mean, a, a bigger job, a better job and more exciting opportunity, a, you know, a way to you know, a way to advance. <clears throat> but I, 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 I've always been s- struck by the notion that, you know, it's easier to say yes than no to a job that's dangled in front of you. You know, yes, it's like, you know, the, the thrill of the unknown. You know, you already know all the good things and all the bad things about your current job. And so it's always tempting or it can be very tempting just to always say yes. But sometimes yes isn't the right answer, right? I mean, you really need to think it through pretty hard before you make those leaps um, and evaluate it. It's, you know, the the thrill of the unknown can uh, be intoxicating. But I think that before you do make that jump to a different place, you really need to evaluate it in a pretty, um, you know, rigorous manner uh, because, you know, that new place is going to have its own set of problems and challenges as well. Yes, I, th- I think you're so right. And I think as women, um, we often kind of jump and say yes before giving things thought, you know, just in order to please people. Um, we talk about that a lot on the show. <laughs> in uh, Susan, in 1984, you became the first female reporter to be sent to the state capitol to cover um, the governor and legislature. And I understand the Me Too movement, which is is a more recent event, um, reminded you of those days. Tell tell our listeners how you handled um, that era 
Um, before, you know, today we have an opportunity as women, I think, to, to stand up and say, you know, I, I'm not going to do that. I don't have to do that that way. Um, and there's more support for that. You know, this was when I was at the Detroit Free Press. Uh, I had joined the Detroit Free Press in 1982. And as you mentioned, in 1984, they did send me to, uh, to Lansing to cover the governor and the legislature um, in Michigan. And it's just amazing to me that it took until 1984 for the Detroit Free Press to send a woman to the state capitol. I mean, when you think about it, that should have happened in 1934. Um, right. But, you know, there I was, a very young woman. I was only about 24 or 25 years old then. And, you know, I re- uh, it, it was very difficult because a lot of these lawmakers, they didn't deal with that many, you know, female journalists, um, you know, and I was very young, and they would just ignore you or talk over you, and you just had to be incredibly persistent and just determined and to get them to answer your questions and really not take no for an answer. That was hard. It was really hard. And the other thing was working in that environment then, uh, you saw things that you'd never see now. For example, I remember I went into the office of the Associated Press, which was inside the state capitol building, um, and taped on the wall were all of those, you know, tacky, trashy cartoons that used to come out of Playboy magazine, and you know, which were just about the objectification of women. And there was even a Playboy pinup um, picture oh on gosh. the wall. And, you know, I think one of the differences between then and now is then, you know, I just sort of rolled my eyes and, you know, went about my business. Now I would say something, maybe take it off the wall, complain to somebody. And I really admire the young women who I have the privilege of working with now at National Geographic who would never silently put up with that, you know, the way the way that I did. And so I, I think that is a really positive change that, you know, to see women really standing up for themselves in these, you know, completely ridiculous situations. You know, I often ask my guests, you know, what what mantra they live by, what is something that, um, you know, keeps keeps us going in, in times of challenge. And I, I read that you shared advice once about be, being, you know, like an inflatable clown that's weighted at the bottom. And when you punch it, it pops back up with a smile. Is that, um, you know, a tactic that you use for life? Well, it is. You know, I think that the quality of resiliency is really underrated. You know, it sounds boring, put one foot in front of the other. But to me, resiliency, it is like that, you know, inflatable clown where you put it down and it comes back and you put it down and it comes back and it has this smile. And to me, what it says is you just got a muscle through difficult situations with as much optimism and grace as possible. And when I think about, you know, how to manage a difficult Tuesday, I think about, I think about that, you know, plastic inflatable clown that I had when I was a kid. And, you know, it reminds me just to keep going because you can get a lot accomplished now. And not only that, I think, you know, the idea of smiling at challenges or laughing at challenges is always really helpful. Um, we just have a, you know, a few minutes left, and I think I'd love for you to just leave our listeners with um, what is your why for why the world will be better when we have more women leaders? Well, I do believe that the women will be better when we have, you know, a real 
a real balance in leadership, right? We all have different leader leader qualities, and I think a lot of women uh, approach problems differently from men. Um, you know, there's good there are good female leaders and there's bad female leaders, but I think it's really important to have a diversity of leaders, and this goes to race and ethnicity as well. Um, that mm-hmm. that the world will be a better place when people, a young person, could look around and see all different ways that people can be effective leaders, including um, you know being effective female leader. I would love it if a girl could you know look around and see so many different ways to succeed. That's when I think we're going to be in a better place. Yeah. Susan, thank you so very much for joining me this evening. It was a great, great conversation, and I'm looking forward to more uh, publications. Thank you. And so continued much, success. I really appreciate it. That's it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch. Thank you so much to our watch team and sponsors for their continued support, and please stay safe and well throughout your week. Thanks for listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Kraus at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and does not reflect the views of WPHD or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours, like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.